Hello. Appropriately enough for a game book about time travel, this is H.J. Doom from the future. Although, technically, it's not the future anymore, it's the present. As I speak these words, and by the time you're listening to them, it will be the past. The key thing is that it's less far in the past than the past you are about to hear, which is further in the past. Anyway, I had some issues with the sound on this one for reasons that I do not fully understand, and the play portion of the podcast sounds a bit like it was recorded in the bath. Apologies for that. I do not know how it happened. I used a recording setup that has generally been fairly good for me, and it just came out sounding really weird. I would go back and re-record it, but it's a couple of hours. I don't think I can afford the time. I found that it was initially quite distracting, but I did get used to the sound as time passed. If you find it a bit much, then you can skip ahead to my review of this book. I'll put the time code in the episode description. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we'll be looking at The Renegade Lord, the first game book in the Falcon series by Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson. Before we get into that, I need to thank a new patron, Carl, who has been kind enough to go to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and put his hand in his pocket to support my nonsense. Thank you so much for your support. It is deeply appreciated. It's thanks to all my patrons that I can actually afford to put out regular bonus episodes like this very one. Patrons also get copies of my role-playing games and gamebook content as well as irregular updates on various projects I'm currently working on. Usually too many projects that I'm currently working on, if I'm honest. I also need to thank listener and patron Neil for suggesting this book for the episode. It wasn't a series I was at all familiar with, and I'm very excited to find out how it plays. Falcon 1, colon, The Renegade Lord, is a science fiction time travel adventure in which you play a time agent pursuing a rogue time lord, not that one, through time and space. As a big fan of original Doctor Who, this is exactly my kind of pulp science fiction nonsense. It's got a gloriously retro cover, which shows a time machine either materialising or dematerialising in front of some moderately angry-looking warriors on horseback. It's got a kind of Chris Foss meets Frank Frazetta vibe to it, which I appreciate very much. Now, we've come across writers Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson before. They wrote the reasonably enjoyable Talisman of Death and the very enjoyable Sword of the Samurai for fighting fantasy, and they're also the duo behind the ninja-themed Way of the Tiger gamebooks, which we will definitely get to one of these days. I have very fond memories of them. I think they're among the better creators in the adventure gamebook space, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they handle a science fiction story. Falcon 1... Colon The Renegade Lord was published by Sphere in 1985, and the internal artwork was provided by Jeff Senior and Nick Weeks. Let's jump into the system. The system is interesting and pleasantly minimalist. There's mechanics of physical attacks, two different types of mental attacks, and evasion rules. 
And it works like this. At point in the text, we'll get to roll 2d6 and compare the result with two different possible outcomes. So an attack roll could have outcomes on a 2 to 7, one thing happens, and on an 8 to 12, another thing happens. Or it could have outcomes of 2 to 4 and 5 to 12 if it was, say, an easy fight. I think higher is always better. Over the course of our adventure, we can collect modifiers to all of the different types of roll we'll be asked to make, and they all start at a zero. I like this. One of the weaknesses of the fighting fantasy system is that it's very hard to balance the random elements when you've got randomly generated stats, and having a defined baseline is something I'm actually doing for my forthcoming gamebook because I am trying to make it a little bit more balanced. You start with 20 endurance points, which is your health, and run out of those and it's game over. So the four modifiers we're dealing with are attack, is self-explanatory, evasion, which is avoiding bad things, and two psychic ones, think strike, which I guess is your ability to slap people by the power of thought, and power of will. And I'm not entirely sure what that does. Unlike fighting fantasy books, you start off with a veritable cornucopia of gear. You've got your time machine, complete with a wonderfully detailed schematic drawing by Nick Weeks. And this comes equipped with a hologram generator so that it can disguise itself in exactly the way the Doctor's TARDIS doesn't. Conversely, you also have a hologram detector so you can find other time machines. You also get a molecular converter, which can change your clothes into something appropriate to the time and planet where you've rocked up. A universal translator, always a requirement in situations like these. Uh, you've access to an auto-dock, which will heal you up to 12 endurance points, so long as you've got time to use it between time zones, it's located inside your time machine. You've got a very neat uh, personal flyer with which you can zoom between areas so long as you don't need to be inconspicuous. Uh, you've got a blaster for shooting people, a psionic helmet for boosting your psychic powers, and a sturdy environment suit, all of these rounding out your equipment. On one level it's a little bit overwhelming, but on another level it helps sell you on the fantasy that you're a skilled time agent, an operative with the backing of a major agency. It gives you the sense that you might actually be up to the job in hand. I imagine that will be undercut almost immediately by my trademark blundering, but it's nice to have a feeling of competence for at least a few sections. It does feel like our slightly macho codename of Falcon is compensating for something though. Uh, if it were up to me, the operative would have had the codename Bovril. One very interesting touch is that you can generate a score for your adventure by collecting letters which you write down on your character sheet as you go along and when you die you wipe away every letter that isn't a Q, which I guess tracks the number of attempts you've made on the book. I say I guess because what you score for each letter is only revealed at the end of the next book in the series and that's to prevent the scoring system from spoiling the outcome of this one, which is, I think, a really nice idea for encouraging people to go on with the series because you can then find out how well you did on the first one. Very clever. There's also a lot of background about life in the 3030s and the way in which time travel works. Basically, there are naturally occurring and somewhat stable tunnels that link times together. Uh, time at either end of the tunnel passes at the same speed. So if you spend half an hour watching an episode of Stingray in the past, you'll come back to the future half an hour after you left. And this solves one of the biggest complaints I have about time travel stories, the ability to create urgency when urgency just doesn't exist if you can go to any point in the past. So in many stories, the villain might just have 
popped off to 1066, but there's no need to set off immediately. You can afford to work out what things might be helpful in 1066, have a light lunch, or even take two weeks in Corfu with your partner and kids, and you can still go back to precisely 1066 whenever you want. Time travel tunnels doesn't fix the problem that time travel creates paradox because actions in the past affect the present, and everything in the past has already happened, and therefore nothing in the past can be changed from the perspective of the present, but that's a much bigger headache for a very different podcast. So that's enough with the preamble. Let's get on with the mission and see if we can't track down this renegade Time Lord. So there's a load of background, which I'm not going to read out because there's like pages and pages of it. It's pretty good. Slightly surplus to requirements, but still selling you on the idea of this future world. So we're going to skip straight to the mission briefing. We're in the future, we're a time agent, that's all we really need to know. Touching the pad which changes the walls of your home to tranquil white, you casually note how smart you look in your dress uniform in the mirror wall. It is less than an hour to your graduation ceremony when you will stand before the Lords of Time in the Hall of Honours, and taking these moments to relax, you remember the excitement of simulated ship-to-ship combat, the long hours of concentration as you worked on your powers of the mind, and the fascinating vid lectures on history that were part of your courses at the academy. My concentration is unbelievably shoddy. I would imagine if I were to represent myself as I am in real life, I would have a very significant negative modifier to my powers of the mind. Though you excelled in all these things, you are well aware that your job, which you began officially today as a special agent of the time police, will be the most challenging of any Federation citizen. The responsibility of guarding the past for all who live today weighs heavily, but such sobering thoughts are interrupted by the quiet tone of your holophone. It's kind of weird looking back on stuff that the 80s there was a more of a, a general trust in police forces, which has been quite heavily eroded by 2022. You click your fingers and the remote accepts contact. Your section commander, Agidi Yelov, seems to appear in the room before you. The slitted pupils of his amber eyes narrow as they adapt to the white light. Tall, lean and cat-like. Yelov looks imposing in his steel-grey uniform, his blue-black hair framing a face which betrays nothing. Falcon, I must see you before the ceremony. Come straight to my office. He taps his desk, breaking the hollow link, and vanishes. Before you can reply. Seconds later, you are on the moving pedway leading to his office in the security wing of Time Headquarters. Time is all in... Uh, capitals. As you leave the domed apartment, the blue sky is clear. It is due to remain so for a further 4.5 days. The door to Yelov's office slides open at your touch. The building's service computer recognises your fingerprints. Agidi Yelov, standing before his comm console, beckons you in. Your pardon for this untimely intrusion. Please be seated. It is only as you step through the doorway that you notice Yelov is not alone. Jibankwe, head of the monitoring section, is lying on a couch, a welcoming smile stretching his black features. You sit and the chair expands with a hiss to fit you snugly. Looking at Yelov, you might think him nervous if you didn't believe him unable to feel anxiety. I have no time for the usual pleasantries. His voice is hard. I know that this is your first mission, but Jibankwe and I have picked you because you're the best person I've got. The fate of every being in the Federation and 
billions beyond will depend on you. We have lost an agent. Q has been killed while on active service, investigating a disturbance of the timeline on the planet Kelados. It seems he had found out who was responsible. Jabankwe speaks next. His final transmission reported that he had identified the culprit as a lord of time. He pauses to watch your reaction to this incredible news. Unfortunately, Q died before he could tell us which one of the lords is trying to change the past in order to gain power here and now in 3033. Yelov continues brusquely. Of course, we can't arrest them all. They are our superiors, and it is a difficult situation, particularly as far as the alien lords of time are concerned. Because of this, your mission has to be completely unofficial. But we must arrest or terminate the renegade lord as soon as we have proof and before anything disastrous occurs. When you have proof, do whatever you feel is necessary, Falcon. Is that understood? So, absolutely. Classic policing. Do you fancy doing an extrajudicial murder? Yes, yes, I'm fine with that, you reply. Yelov continues, It will be a race against time. You may need to deal with an attempt to change the past within the next few hours. Yes, Jabankwe breaks in. Q had already foiled one attempt of the Kelados timeline in 2710 AD. He was a fine agent. It is too late for you to do anything to save him. Time has passed in the time holes at the same rate it passes in the present, and if you travel back to the same hole you would arrive after his death. I have identified an even earlier time hole on Kelados, but Skiro's men in the tech section say we can't send you back there and put you into cold sleep to awaken at the time of Q's arrival because of the rapid aging effects of being away from your own time for extended periods. Already the writers are grappling with the fact that time travel stories just don't work. They just don't really work. They work okay in Doctor Who purely because he doesn't have control of the TARDIS for the vast majority of the show's run. And so once the Doctor and companions have arrived at a location, they're sort of trapped in that location if they want to solve it. They can't just jump around in time. It's a magic door rather than a time machine in many ways. But already we are grappling with the difficulties of how things in the past affect things in the future. Your machine is ready in the Eiger Vault, Yelov goes on. We have no idea what the Renegade Lord's next move will be, but all the Lords will attend your graduation ceremony. All five of their time machines are logged in the vault. So none of them are meddling with the past as we speak. Except, of course, that they have already meddled with the past, if they've ever gone to the past. Go to your ceremony, and remember, one of them is a traitor. A traitor to time, and to the Space Federation. Good luck, Falcon. If you are not successful, we may never meet again. As you turn to the door, Jabankwe rises and says, We'll be seeing you, Falcon. You salute and leave, to begin your search for the Renegade Lord wondering whether, in fact, you would ever see any of them or any of your friends again. The fate of the world rests on your shoulders. Now turn over. I think that's a pretty good introduction, endorsement of extrajudicial murder aside. So let's uh, dive straight in and see what happens with the mission. So we're immediately instructed to score a Q. 
The door hums closed behind you as you step out of the high security wing which houses Section Chief Yelov's offices. Boarding the pedway, you request the time. The service computer responds from a nearby speaker. It is three minutes and fifteen seconds to your appointment with the Lords of Time at 10am, Falcon. If you would care to step into lane nine, I can see that you arrive on time. Realising that you have only a few moments to prepare, you transfer to lane nine and open a link to Kane, punching in your security clearance code on your remote access terminal. So Kane is uh, the cybernetic artificial intelligence nexus, one of the most advanced computers known to man. Uh, which I completely forgot to list on the gigantic list of equipment. Uh, but yes, you you have access to the internet, effectively. Uh, your remote access terminal is a flexible keyboard and visual display incorporated into the left forearm of your uniform, which you can use to communicate with Kane via the building's service computer. The link opens. Uh, do you want to ask to see Special Agent Q's termination report? Ask to see the last transmission which Special Agent Q submitted to Agidi Yelov, or ask Kane why Section Chief Yelov gave you so little warning about your mission prior to the ceremony. Um, they all sound like really plausible things to do. As someone naturally paranoid about security services of all kinds, I will go with the final option and ask why Yelov gave so little warning. You give your Epsilon security code and the micro display on your wrist lights up. Section Chief Yelov unavailable at time of transmission. Vacation. Section Chief Jabankwe, head of TIM Temporal Irregularity Monitoring, received last transmission of Agent Q and passed to Section Chief Yelov on his return to active duty 37 minutes before your meeting with Yelov. Uh, from here we can ask Kane where Agidi Yelov spent his vacation. Ask to see the last file which Special Agent Q transmitted to Agidi Yelov. I think... I'm less interested in whether he went to Disney World, Florida, or Disney World, Paris, than I am in what Agent Q said. So we'll go with that option. You give your Epsilon security code and the micro display on your wrist lights up. Security clearance code insufficient. Access denied. Knowing that your Epsilon security code should be high enough to gain access, you request the level of security code necessary. Kane responds with the information that this report has been reclassified access code Theta. Theta is a level of security clearance held by section chiefs, and special agents cannot cause information to be classified at this level. Ooh, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, and also in the time agency, it would appear. It feels as though my paranoia was not at all misplaced. You have arrived at the Hall of Honours. Your graduation is about to commence. I have a particular disdain for graduation ceremonies. I only appeared at my first graduation ceremony because basically my parents would have been massively disappointed if they hadn't got to see me in the gown. However, immediately on completing graduation, the gown came off and an Iron Maiden t-shirt went on. So the only photograph they've got of me, unfortunately, is me wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt over the top of academic dress. Bit selfish looking back on it. I should have just sucked it up and given them a nice photo. But yeah, I do have a, uh, a pronounced disdain for such ceremonies and the two degrees I did subsequently, I did not attend the graduation ceremony for. The silver doors hiss apart, affording you your first view of the Hall of Honours, which boasts a marble floor and colonnades. In the centre is a large oaken table in the shape of a horseshoe, the only wood in the time building. 
around which sit the five lords of time. Your universal translator synthesizes an unusual watery gurgling into words of welcome that sound in your ear. Hmm, there's a challenge. Oh, I think I know how I'm going to do it. Welcome, Agent Falcon. Never has a candidate graduated from the Academy with so high a score. Your self-control allows you to smother any outward betrayal of surprise at the sight of the being which greets you. Submerged in a huge tank, along with some small aquatic mammals, is what looks like a giant lobster, with bloated, bluish brain sacks floating under its spiked carapace. It waves a fearsome purplish pincer and clicks and gurgles. I am the Time Lord Kirik of the Kralladi. You bow respectfully and turn to look at the other lords. I think if we end up in Earth's past, we can probably discount Lord Kirik as the rogue Time Lord, purely on the grounds of I don't think there's a hologram generator invented which will enable a giant lobster with bloated bluish brain sacks to realistically pass as, as human just by virtue of the difficulty of getting through doors and things like that. You bow respectfully and turn to look at the other lords. You recognise Lord Speak, a dapper little earther in a navy dress uniform. On his left sits a squat humanoid figure with blue skin and a mane of bristling white hairs, Lord Silvermane of Rigel Prime. On the other side of the table sits Lord Pilota, a seven-foot-tall Lastlander woman with the fragile build and sharp-boned features of all those who live on that low-gravity world. She is supported in her chair by a hydraulic exoskeleton which gives her the appearance of a robot. But it is the fifth Lord of Time, sitting on her right, who looks the strangest of them all. A network of silica, like an oversized honeycomb, rests on the floor. Inside each of the six cells of the honeycomb is what looks like a giant ant, swathed in silk like a cocoon. Their front parts protrude from the silk, plainly showing dull red compound eyes and wicked-looking mandibles, which are in constant motion. Collectively, they are called the Kresh 82282 and they are six parts of a communal mind, in constant mind-link with each other. They are hivers, a separate part of the hive. That is cool. It's a great set piece, the introduction of different aliens, and a great opportunity for the writers to show that they're prepared to think outside the box, and they've really delivered on that, I think. You know, giant lobster fellow, um, enormously tall woman in hydraulic exoskeleton and a bunch of ants they are really really cool uh, i think that's um yeah just fantastic imagery the ceremony is brief you swear an oath of allegiance to time and are duly commissioned as a special agent pelota rises and steps forward uncomfortable in the relatively high gravity of earth and pins your wings to your chest your universal translator renders a mixed babble of applause the ceremony is drawing to a close, and you still have little information on the Lords of Time. You know this will be your last chance to meet them together in the same room for some time. Perhaps forever. If you know why Section Chief Yelov did not contact you until the last minute, uh, we can turn to a particular paragraph. There's a picture of the Lords of Time. Um, the human, I note, is smoking a cigarette in a cigarette holder. That's pretty cool. I have to say, it does not really match 
the strangeness of the things I was imagining in my head. Um, with the exception of the lobster fellow, who is great. The rest are a little bit disappointing, I would say. Um, but yes, we do know why Section Chief Yelov did not contact you until the last minute about the mission. He was on holiday two weeks in Morecambe. So, do we want to ask with which of the Time Lords of Time Section Chief Yelov spent his vacation? We want to use our psychic awareness to contact one of them mentally. Do we want to ask if one of them has travelled in time since the death of Agent Q? Smile and make a short speech of thanks. Let's go with the first option. I'm enjoying playing detective. You ask the Lords of Time with which of them Yelov spent his vacation. You step back in surprise as Kirik's pincers thrash the waters of his tank. He is plainly outraged. The Kresh scuttle into and out of their cocoons, but your translator cannot guide you as to what this may mean. Pelota raises her eyebrows and exchanges glance with Silvermane before Speak demands, What do you want to know that for? It is none of your business. Okay, so we're instructed to score a B. And I immediately want to know, of course, what a B means, but I can't unless I'm prepared to fork out for the sequel. It's a very clever bit of marketing. Speak says, Discretion is important to an agent of time, police. If you are to prove that you can further the course of peace within the Space Federation while being vigilant against anyone so diabolical as to tamper with the past, you must learn this quickly. I trust you will show more respect for your superiors from now on. Feeling that your graduation ceremony has not been a complete success, you salute and are about to leave when Lord Kirik grabs one of the small seal-like creatures in his tank and thrusts it into his mouth with voracious ferocity. He is obscured by a cloud of blood as you finally leave. You leave the Hall of Honours en route for the Eiger Vault and your time machine and you approach the hover rail calling a car for the nearest embarkation point using Kane and the service computer. Stepping from the time building pedway, you emerge into the cityscape to be dwarfed by the tiered office buildings surrounded by housing for the workers and the prod markets which supply them. Jet copters hum overhead like streams of flies, each one darting or circling, its pilot intent on reaching particular destinations. The lower level streets and the pedways are thick with people. Those streets which curve up towards the higher levels and along the buttresses of the larger buildings bear a steady flow of skimmers, runners sparking as they contact the electrified street metal. Some way from the embarkation point you realise you are being followed. You step from the pedway onto the deserted bay of the Intel Fax building. The anonymous figure of an office worker in a one-piece suit steps off the pedway behind you. So do we want to use our power of will to control the follower? Duck into a doorway and wait to confront him at close quarters. Slip through the Intel Fax warehouse and lose your pursuer in the low-life area of Old Geneva. I think because I'm excited to try out my psychic powers, we're going to try and use the power of will to control the follower. Not entirely sure what the ethics of using mind control powers are as a time agent. I feel as though there's probably some kind of regulations about, you know, probable cause and what have you that probably ought to apply before you just start dominating people's minds willy-nilly, but, you know, apparently it's just, just up to my judgment. You concentrate your mind but find no thought patterns to latch onto. Your pursuer is evidently either a psydroid or a robot of advanced design. 
Do we want to duck into the doorway and wait to confront him at close quarters, slip through the Intel Fax warehouse and lose the pursuer in the low-life area, or blast him? Um, I'm assuming robots are not sufficiently advanced to have rights, so I'm just going to try and blast him. Like, I can't imagine anything good coming of confronting a robot or a sidroid. It's not like I can realistically interrogate something that doesn't feel fear, pain, shame or guilt. I think heading to the low-life area is just multiplying the problems I'm going to be facing. So I think blasting him is the correct choice. So you flip the safety on your blaster and the charge light registers. You take aim. So we make an attack roll with our modifier of zero. And it's a 2 to 5 or a 6 to 12. Pair of 4s, that's an 8. So we, I assume that means we have hit. A lancing right bolt of superheated plasma strikes the sidroid, which short circuits in a flood of sparks and pitches forward inert. A nearby plasma sensor begins to flash, signalling SITPOL enforcers, the civil police. A blue and gold SITPOL jet copter lands nearby as you examine the charred remains of the sidroid. The damage is too severe for you to gain a clue as to its origins. Two enforcers alight from their copter, pointing their stun lances at you. Let's see your ID. You produce your ID chips and hand it to the one who spoke, still covered by the other. He clips it into his remote access terminal on his arm, and a look of disappointment crosses his features as he realises who you are. Ah, uh, I'm higher up the rank of government bully boys than you are, my son. What's been going on here? he says. You report exactly what has happened and he returns your chip and turns to examine the sidroid. Looks like you've done some expensive damage here, says one of the enforcers. I think we'll have to take you in. He points the stun lance at you. Just what you'd expect from an SAT. They give them all these wonderful toys and helmets that let them look into an honest man's mind. And what do they do? Pop off their blasters like they've just escaped from the incubator. So they have sort of got me banged to rights given that my approach has so far been try and mind control and then just shoot. So yeah, they are they are very, very accurate. Hold on, says the other. Miss Tinkan carries a particle disruptor. After further examination, he consults his RAT. This is an ex-SAT security droid, a banned model, apparently. They were unpredictable. Funny that, you being an SAT agent, wouldn't you say? Anyway, just our luck. You've won yourself a 50 creds bounty for eliminating this junk here. The other enforcer spits in disgust. They turn on their heels and climb in, bathing you with the copter's hot exhaust as they take off. You continue on your way to the hover rail. So, I shot without warning. Fortunately, it turned out to be a criminal sidroid. So, luck very much on my side. You step into the small hovrail car, secure the bubble hatch and type in your destination and clearance code as the car rises on its air buffer. The acceleration is steady but not uncomfortable and lasts for half the journey before you deaccelerate to the Eiger Vault embarkation point. After many changes of direction, occasionally riding above slower moving cars, you leave the spectacular vista of the neon clad city behind and plunge into the tunnel to the Eiger. Leaving the monorail, you walk to the checkpoint outside the enormous plastial doors where your ID chip is checked and the mind scanner is used to double check that you may be allowed into the vault. You step through a small personnel door, past two security droids into the cavern which houses the time machines and the research section of time. The area in which the machines are kept is partitioned at intervals and you head straight for your own bay. 
In the centre of the bay, which is lined on three sides with racks carrying maintenance equipment, spare parts, the Varric drive recharger and sundry other useful items, lies Falcon's wing. You approach the access hatch and the mind scanner lights up red, then green. You are drawn up into the time machine by invisible tractor beams activated by Kane. Soon you are standing on the glowing access disc and the Kane chimes, Welcome Falcon. So that's a nice little image as well. Very cinematic, I can really visualise it in my head. Exactly the sort of thing that you would include in a science fiction movie showing off the futuristic tech. The hatch seals you in as you settle into your crash couch and run routine systems checks. Noting that all is in order, you decide to ask Kane for some information. If you have recorded the serial number of a droid and wish to investigate its origin, you can turn to the number contained within the serial code. Alas, I exploded the serial code, so we have to go to a different paragraph. If you wish to do so, you may use Kane to look at the files on each of the Lords of Time. Each file has a number corresponding to a paragraph in this book. You should note these down in the boxes provided on your agent profile. That's your character sheet. You may turn to these whenever you are in your time machine, but always note the number of the paragraph you are already at, as no paragraph number to turn to will be given in the files. So we've got one for Lord Speak, Silvermane, Kirik, Crash, and Pilota. Okay, in the interest of moving the plot along, I'm not going to look at all of these now, but I will have a look at Speak, who I perhaps cynically have assumed is the renegade Time Lord. So we've got Speak, Lord of Time, species Earther, born Pacific on Earth, 2887, and lives in Alpolis. He is described as a brilliant scientist. Speak, partly due to his mental powers, was one of two men largely responsible for the invention of the time machine. Like many brilliant men, his eccentric will not suffer fools gladly and is prone to break off a conversation suddenly lost in thought. He is a brave man and with Irving Klimt undertook the first ever voyage into the past, starting from 2974. They undertook several journeys together, but Klimt never returned from an investigation of classical Greece in the time of Philip of Macedon. I wonder if we can get there with our uh, time machine. Lord Speak has always maintained he was killed in a drunken brawl by a soldier, though Klimt had always been careful not to change the past by becoming involved. With the setting up of time, Speak was the obvious choice for appointment as the Earther Lord, and he has enjoyed his position ever since. He is also well known for his pioneering work on the mental attack of Thinkstrike, with which he is adept. He is a professor of Earth archaeology at the Academy, where his specialist subject is Alexander the Great. So we get those little potted history for all of them. So that's nice. I, I like that. So uh, when we are ready, we may ask Cain the current whereabouts of the Lords of Time, or ask if there have been any expeditions into the past since the death of Agent Q. I think that is the one that I'm most interested in. I am very much enjoying how consequential all of these decisions feel in the early part of the story. As a matter of course, all time trips into and out of the Eiger Vault time hole are logged by the monitoring station. You ask Kane to provide you with the log of movement since the death of Agent Q, typing your security clearance code at the terminal in front of you. So the screen flashes up the information. So uh, we've got a number of trips. Uh, yesterday, Q went into the past. Then someone 
with an Epsilon security clearance, went into the past. Q returned to the Iger Vault. Then Kirik went into the past on Kelados, which is, to be fair, Kirik's home planet, and returned to the present. Pelota tried to go into the future. That's interesting. That was an aborted attempt to go into the future. That's intriguing. Um, then a trip was made by someone with Epsilon security code um, today, and someone else made an Epsilon security code clearance journey, and Kirik has just gone to Kelados in the present day, so he's used the, the time vault to actually travel in space rather than time. So what's interesting is that we've got three Epsilon security code journeys, which means unless someone tried to go into the future, like Pelota did, there is someone out there even now. So it is evidence that the Eigervolt time hole has been busy, but for some reason the information has largely been classified at Theta or Omega, only someone of security clearance higher than yours held by Section Chief and Lords. You decide to ask Kane for the current whereabouts of the five Lords. I know where one of them is. Uh, Kirik is on Kelados. Where are the Lords of Time at this moment, you ask Kane. Your computer chooses a visual display for this information from the files of the service computer. Pelota is in the Freefall Recreation Centre. Silvermane is in the Eiger Vault. Kirik is on a time hold trip to Kelados. Crash 82282. I have insufficient clearance and speak I have insufficient clearance. Kane says, it is unusual that access to this kind of information should be denied to your level of security clearance. I have taken the precaution of linking with the service computer, and I can tell you that Lord Kirik entered the Eiger Vault and left in his time machine. Lord Silvermane has just arrived here at 12.40, as have two others with Omega security clearance at 12.33 and 12.37. Only Lords have this code. The conclusion must be obvious, even to a human. You decide to act on Kane's information after telling him to shut up, and hurry out to meet the recent arrivals. It's all going down at the Iger vaults, it would appear. You float down out of the Falcon's wing and walk quickly to the adjacent bays. You pass the bay used for the crash machine first. It is empty. Then you see the powerful, squat form of Lord Silvermane striding towards his machine, just as that of Lord Speak winks out of the bay, back into the past. Catching up with Lord Silvermane, you ask him where he intends to go. He replies brusquely, I'm on important official business, and you need not concern yourself with it. Speak has just left, however, and you may well be able to guess where he has gone if you examine his file. Goodbye, Falcon. And he hurries towards his time machine. So do you want to stop Lord Silvermane and insist he tells you where he is going? Uh, probably unhelpful. Or return to your time machine and try to go after one of the other lords. I think we will go after one of the other lords. You arrive back at the Falcon's wing and the red light of the brain scanner comes on. As you wait for the green, a security guard approaches, wearing a full-face helmet and power armour, which is not standard issue. He carries a laser rifle. Excuse me, sir? His voice hisses through the air-escape ducts of his armour. Turning to meet him, do you... Wait for him to come closer, or use your psychic awareness to find out his intentions. Like we're uh, definitely going to try and find out 
his intentions. To your consternation, you cannot reach through to his mind. Instead, you feel the interference effect of a psionic damper helmet. This is a recent invention of the Hivers. So, do we order him to stay where he is, or wait for him to join you outside Falcon's wing? We'll order him to stay where he is. This is uh, one of those situations where an organisational chart showing the relative hierarchies and jurisdictions of the different agencies that we may come into contact with would be vaguely helpful, but also very dull. Uh, so we score, we score a C. Is that good? He goes for his laser rifle, but with the superb reactions and the skill of a trained combatier, you draw your blaster and fire first. So uh, again, it looks like a 6 to 12 or a 2 to 5. Let's see if uh, we can continue our run of good shooting. Ooh, five and a one. Just managed to get the six. A brilliant white bolt of burning plasma takes your would-be assassin in the chest, knocking him backwards and taking his life as it melts through his armour. You kneel by him as a security droid arrives. Seeing signs of life in his eyes, though he is beyond help, you ask him who sent him to kill you. One of the lords. His words are choked off by a rattling cough as the blood from his lungs begins to spill from his mouth and death takes him. You may take his psionic damper circlet if you wish. I do wish. The security droid comes towards you, its stun lance aimed, and you hand over your identification and report what has happened. A message appears in red on the screen set in the droid's chest. ID passed. Your story coincides with videographic evidence. A report will be filed. Please continue your business. And it begins to drag the body of your assailant out of the bay. Again, questions being raised on the degree of oversight that uh, time agents have as I am able to straight up murder a guy and, as far as I can tell, not even have to fill in any paperwork. That's not troubling at all. The scanner light above your head is now green and you are drawn up by invisible tractor beams into the relative safety of the Falcon's wing. You have no information as to the whereabouts of Crash 82282 but some about the other lords. What will you do? Uh, so we could try to follow Lord Speak into the past. We could follow Lord Kirik to Kelados 3033 AD. We could ask Kane where Silvermane is. We could quickly contact the Lord Pilota by holophone. Um, I do want to follow Lord Speak. I don't particularly want to follow Lord Kirik because he messed up that seal in annoyance and I feel like he could do the same to me. Silvermane, I don't think is the traitor. I still think it's Lord Speak. So I think I need some more information and the only source of information is Lord Pilota, so we'll give her a bell. You call up the Freefall Recreation Centre at Spyro's Ringworld, a massive wheel-like world in miniature orbiting the Earth, and one which I can't help but feel that, that having a name that's very nearly a homophone for ringworm is not the best idea. Their hollow coordinator seems to appear in your time machine. She is a striking girl, her skin tinted blue with orange flashes. She puts you through to Lord Pilota's personal assistant. He is a bony, hollow-cheeked man, showing signs of Medawar syndrome, the onset of rapid ageing. You identify yourself and ask for her lordship, and the hologram winks out momentarily. When the hollow picture of the assistant reappears, he says, Lord Pilota is temporarily indisposed. Under no circumstances may she be contacted at the moment. If you would care to visit Spyro's Ringworld, however, she will be pleased to grant you immediate audience, as she believes she has some information which may interest you as an agent of the Time Police. 
With that, he breaks contact, and the blue-skinned coordinator informs you that the line has been closed to all calls. She asks, What is that weird spaceship you're in? Kane informs you by requisitioning Kane informs you that by requisitioning a shuttle from the Iger base, you could dock at Spyro's Ringworld in eighteen minutes. Ignoring the hollow coordinator, bit rude, do you want to go to Spyro's Ringworld or choose another course? We will go to Spyro's Ringworld, the one that sounds a bit like a fungal infection. Through Kane, you order that a shuttle be prepared for your trip to Spyro's Ringworld and waste no time. You run from the doors of the vault across the launch bay to the small dart-shaped shuttle with its huge ungainly drive vents, each as large as the cabin. The navigational computer is already set as you strap into the acceleration web behind the pilot. With a flash of light, the ion drive fires and you are accelerated sickeningly quickly. This is a Navy pilot. She has never flown civilian craft. Minutes later, the docking computer locks onto the ring world, a glittering disc, 20 miles across, turning silently in space. The deacceleration is equally unpleasant. As you step into the airlock, the pilot turns and smiles. You stood that well? He must be fit. You ask her to stand by for your return journey and enter the ring world. Lord Pilota's assistant meets you as you emerge from the airlock and helping you into a jetpack points up to the empty centre of the so-called ring world. You are standing on the inside rim of the disc which is rotating quickly enough to produce a gravity not far below that of Earth. Looking up, you see the tops of the buildings 20 miles away on the opposite side of the rim. Oh, it's big. The assistant explains that the Lord Pelota is in the gravity-free zone, or free-fall area, in the centre of the disc, halfway to the other rim. You blast off with him confidently enough and head for the centre of the rim world. As you approach, you see Lord Pelota spinning slowly head over heels, apparently at ease without the hydraulic exoskeleton, she uses in Earth gravity. There's a picture of the ring world with Pilota doing some gentle acrobatics. It's fine. It's really fine. With a shock, you realise that you cannot adapt easily to freefall and accidentally cannon into her, sending you both towards the other rim. She steadies herself easily and with two deft jetpack blasts returns you to a stationary position in freefall. She speaks, her voice high-pitched in the thin air. Funken. You've come all this way to see me. Why? What is so important? Do you want to accuse her of trying to change the past? Tell her that a lord of time has been interfering with the timelines and ask for her help? Or ask if she has information for you? We will ask if she has information because that's what the assistant said. So we have scored another C. Pelota responds, I noticed yesterday that someone had spent much time researching the history of Earth around the time hole of 1241 AD. A very great deal of time, according to the central library log. I suggest you make it your first mission to investigate that time hole, just in case someone is doing something they shouldn't be. I know that there isn't much to go on here. Call it a hunch, if you like, but I would appreciate it if you would move quickly and check that all is well. You decide to keep your real mission secret and return to Earth for further information. Saluting Pelota and taking your leave, you are back in the console of your time machine within 30 minutes. Kane confirms that what Pelota said about the library is true, and Pelota herself is not the one who has researched this part of Earth history. A choice. We could try and follow Lord Speak into the past. We could try and follow Lord Kirik to Kelados. We could move back into the time hole in 1241 or spend some time in the autodoc. I think we'll go back to 1241. It's the best lead we've got.
you instruct Kane to turn on the Variac drive to shift you into null space and to re-engage the drive as soon as you have finished inputting the navigational coordinates for the time hole on Earth 1241 AD. Your scalp tingles slightly as the time machine moves out of phase and everything around you seems grey and insubstantial. You know that should you turn on the outside camera the screen would remain blank. Not even blackness exists in null space. You cast your thoughts into this void and using your psychic awareness locate the time hole on Earth 1241. When you have translated the location into coordinates for Kane, the Variac drive engages once more. The process of re-emerging in real time is immediate, but seems to take about an hour for you. You may spend this time in the auto-dock if you wish and gain up to 12 endurance points. That's kind of cool. There is experience in null space, but not time. I like that. A neat and suitably head-scratchy little wrinkle for time travel. The outside camera begins to swivel, showing you the land all around. Behind you is a forest shrouded in snow, and the hologram generator disguises Falcon's wing as part of this forest. Sensible. You are on high ground, and to the right you can see a village with a few stone dwellings and many wattle and daub huts, their thatched roofs laden with snow. Ahead, the frosted ground falls away into a wide river valley. The river is frozen over, but you can plainly see its graceful curves stretching to a large walled city a few miles away. Here and there on the plain, you can see parties of horsemen riding swiftly. You ask Kane for some historical information. Kane responds, It is winter, 1241 AD. The city you see is Vienna, the river, the Danube. The Mongol horde, led by the general Subutai, has conquered Russia and Poland, and defeated a western army at Liegnitz before overrunning Hungary. They are a few miles from Vienna, poised to ravage the rest of Europe. Their ruler is Ogadai, son of Chinggis Khan. He will die within the next few days. When the news reaches the Golden Horde, they must undergo Chinggis Khan's code of law. The Yasa return to the Mongol capital, Karakorum, to decide who will succeed him. Vienna will not fall. Europe will be saved. You break in, and if Ogadai should live... Kane continues, the likelihood is Europe would be overrun, and the timelines changed beyond recognition. Civilization would be set back a thousand years. You decide to investigate the area for signs of another time machine, and Kane programs the molecular converter to produce the clothes of a Viennese peasant, a sackcloth tunic, woolen leggings, and a hooded cloak, which you put on over your own uniform. You step out into the fresh, clean air. I'm not convinced that the Mongols invading Western Europe would be the end of civilization. That's a very Western-centric view, because the Mongols effectively conquered China and founded a successful dynasty in China. So, you know, other centers of culture and learning are available, uh, Indian subcontinent as well, to say nothing of North Africa, countries like Ethiopia, which were among the most sophisticated nation-states at the time. So, yeah, it doesn't mean civilization would be set back a thousand years at all. That's a profoundly Eurocentric view of civilization. And that's assuming that the Mongols were not culturally assimilated into European society to any degree. Well, don't get me wrong, history would be very different. Maybe some things would happen rather more slowly, but 
yeah, I think it's a bit of an overstatement to say civilization would be set back a thousand years. You walk along the edge of the forest towards the village. Curls of smoke wind up from the halls and the roofs of the cottages and huts. As you approach it, your holo detector picks up a hologram. A time machine has been disguised as some trees. Your psychic awareness catches a thought as if you have discovered somebody doing something that they shouldn't. A bought reconnaissance you sense next. There is a click and a hiss of a hatch opening and closing, and a group of nearby trees winks out abruptly. A metre-long canister rolls down from the bank on which the time machine had stood. You run towards it and recognise it as a nuclear bomb. Wow. Wow. That escalated quickly. The digits on the timer are ticking past like an old-fashioned 20th century fruit machine. The symbols are foreign, but you guess that all of the red stars will be in a line within about 30 seconds. The nuclear device appears to be of a standard design and is capable of destroying Vienna and most life forms within 20 miles of this spot. This would change history beyond recognition. Yeah, that, that I think would be pretty severe. As you watch, another of the red stars clicks into place on the detonate line. The dials click forward one space at a time, and when the middle star has clicked forward three times, the stars will be lined up on the detonate line and the bomb will explode. Each of the three dials has three buttons above it, with which you can manually move the dials, one, two or three positions onward, but you don't know which button is which. You press the buttons for the two dials whose stars are on the detonate line, but they are locked. You'll have to move the star on the middle dial to the disarm position without pressing a button that will make it stop on the detonate line. So, that's pretty complicated. Basically, there's a nice diagram which makes it much, much simpler, which obviously I can't share with you, this being an audio medium, but it is. it does look kind of like a fruit machine, and we've got three buttons to press. If we get a three then the star will advance to the detonate. If we get a two, it'll advance to just before the detonate. If we get a one, obviously it'll be fine. So I feel like we've got a two in three chance. Only an absolute maniac would place the three in the middle of three buttons, I think. So I'm going to go for the centre button. I think that's the logical one. You press the button and the red star clicks forward onto the line before the detonate line. That's exactly right. And if I press the centre button again, it will advance two spaces past the detonate to the disarm. So we'll press the centre button again. You press the button and the red star clicks forward onto the disarmed line. You breathe a sigh of relief. And we score a K. You are wiping the sweat from your brow when suddenly, with blood-curdling cries, a mass of horsemen burst from the trees behind you. They are armed with short bows, hooked lances and curved swords. Their weathered yellow faces with oriental eyes and black moustaches are creased with the joy of slaughter. That is not a sentence I felt massively comfortable saying. Many have conical helmets spiked with a plume of horsehair at their centre. They wear painted strips of oxhide, laced together for armour over leather jackets and breeches. There seem to be hundreds of them, boiling from the cover of the trees, too many for you to use your mental powers. Do you want to run for the shelter of the village, run the longer distance back to Falcon's Wing, or use your blaster on them? I think there's too many of them to blast. I think they'll probably be more than capable of ransacking a village to find me. So I guess it's a test of stamina as we run back to the Falcon's Wing. I don't want to blast them. Too many of them, and that would definitely mess with the timeline. 
Hopefully I can scoop up the bomb and take it with me. Leaving unexploded nuclear munitions in the past feels like that could be asking for trouble. You sprint as fast as you can towards the group of trees which are in fact the falcon's wing. A group of horsemen, seeing you, wheel their mounts and charge after you. They fire their bows from horseback. You try to zigzag as you run to spoil their aim. Make an evasion roll. 2 to 6 or 7 to 12. A straight 50-50. 2 and a 6 gets us 8. Should be alright. Rolling quite well. Arrows fly all around you, but you make it back to the falcon's wing, still carrying the nuclear bomb. You are drawn up just in time. The Mongols are close behind you, but you see on your camera screens that they are puzzled by your sudden disappearance. Some are making signs to ward off evil spirits. Back in your time machine, you catch your breath and decide where in time to travel next. Do you want to try and track down Lord Speak or follow Lord Kirik to Kalados in 3033 AD? I think we will try and track down Lord Speak, but I also think we will end the playthrough there. I've been recording for an hour and 25 minutes and I don't want to spoil this because it's really good and I'm having tremendous fun with it. I will go away and try and play through the rest of it off mic and then come back to you in just a few moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! It is a couple of days later and I have finished Falcon 1 colon the Renegade Lord. Did I enjoy it? Yes. Very much so. I didn't succeed on my first attempt, but I did find a correct path on my second try, although I had to fudge a few dice rolls and invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule to get to the end, so I guess that invalidates the letter salad scoring system. But, you know, hey-ho. I think overall it did most things well and a few things very well indeed. I don't think it did much badly, if I'm honest. There's a basic level of quality that it just doesn't really drop below. As a starter, I think the way it uses art to do world building is fantastic. The various schematics make the opening pages feel more like a Haynes manual than a novel, but it left me completely invested in the idea of being a time agent. The technical diagrams by Nick Weeks are fantastic. The future which the book paints feels like a vivid backdrop for the story, and although it's nothing groundbreaking, it feels pleasingly coherent. It feels like some thoughts got into it. I think the world building also benefits from being compared with fighting fantasy's famously subpar attempt to do science fiction stories. This is streets ahead of most of them in terms of creating a world that invites adventure and feels solid. I think the fact that it's the first in a series helps here. The authors are investing in world building that's going to pay off across many books. I'm sure if fighting fantasy had started as a science fiction setting, it would have got to the same point with its own world, just as the very meat and potatoes setting of Warlock of Firetop Mountain eventually evolves into a rich and varied fantasy world that is basically my favourite place to go adventuring. But the fact that the fighting fantasy books are all atomised in terms of the science fiction worlds they create means that there just has never been the space to do really excellent world building, even when the books have been, you know, very enjoyable. It would be interesting to play a game book set in a recognisable science fiction setting such as, I know, Star Trek or Star Wars and see if that gives a positive experience. One of the issues which I've flagged multiple times is that science fiction stories sometimes struggle to constrain and control the player's options in a way that makes sense. 
science fiction characters are often more mobile and less dependent on solving problems in the moment compared to their pseudo-medieval compatriots. By having time as well as space to roam through, the Renegade Lord potentially creates additional problems, but it manages these, I think, really well. You do have plenty of freedom in terms of where you go when your mission starts. You get three distinct options. They all feel really sensible and natural. And the nature of your mission, the fact that you are trying to hunt down this Renegade Lord, that necessarily constrains those options in a way that feels appropriate. You are an essentially reactive character whose actions are dictated by responding to the actions of the Renegade Lord. And that constrains your choices, but it doesn't make you feel helpless at any point. And it does a really good job of balancing the idea that you can kind of go anywhere you want with your time machine with the idea that if you don't constantly try and find the Renegade Lord, things are going to go very badly indeed. There's also a nice variety of places to visit. I like that you can visit the past of alien planets as well as the past of Earth. That's something that not many time travel stories focus on, probably because the past and present of an alien planet are usually equally alien. And one of the things you're trying to do with time travel is disorient the players by placing them in a context that's simultaneously familiar and strange. And alien planets are strange from the get-go. So going to a, the past of an alien planet that's more strange doesn't really make sense. I think there's an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine where they go back to the past of the Klingon Empire. But by that point, there'd been some very serious world building done in that setting to make it work. And even then, it's only going to work for pretty hardened Trek aficionados. I also like that there are some bits of the past that aren't directly relevant to the main plot. There's a lovely little subplot in ancient Greece, which isn't directly linked to the main mission's outcome, but it does tie into some of the clues that you're given at the start. And I like that very much. You've got a reason for going there, and finding blind alleys is a central part of any kind of detective or even spy story, which is what this is, albeit one with a nuclear bomb in the middle of the 13th century to worry about. The whole idea of being a secret agent time traveller is very well realised. I never felt like the story had got away from me or that I was being funnelled into meaningless encounters simply in order to pad the section count out. Everything ties into your mission or is flagged as not part of your mission in a way that's interesting. It's a pressured race against time and having that singular focus is really important for the story to work. You can't really afford too many digressions unless those digressions make sense as part of your process of investigation and chasing down leads. And running down the clues and solving the relatively simple puzzles, it always feels good. Listening back as I edited my playthrough, I noticed lots of fairly big pointers to follow that I'd missed because I can't read aloud and think at the same time. The authors have taken real care to make sure that the clue trail works and that it all functions as part of the world they've created. And I think that indicates they did do a decent amount of planning for this book. That shouldn't be praiseworthy. Planning out the structure of a game book ought to be just what you do when you're starting to think about writing a game book. But we've seen more than a few authors who just sat in front of a typewriter and went hell for leather 
until they've got something long enough to submit. So sadly, it does have to count as a positive. Time is tricky in game books, and here the time zones essentially function more like locations than time periods, and that's absolutely fine because the alternative is a massive headache in terms of tracking when you have been. Instead, the Renegade Lord does a little light tracking of where you've been in order to demonstrate the passage of time, but not in a way that involves excessive bookkeeping. It just flags, have you been to any of these locations previous to going to this one? And if you say yes, then you get a different encounter than if you say no. As Star Strider Shoulders, creating formal systems for the passage of time can wind up feeling very peculiar indeed. And I think this probably is the best way to do it without it feeling intrusive or having to make it just a central plank of your design. Having seen one book handle time and a race against time through a very clunky and odd system, it's really refreshing to see someone just do it by writing the story in such a way that the passage of time is present and feels natural. There's a really nice bit where you can arrive either before or after an assassination, depending on the order you do things, and it just works without needing to get too into the weeds on causality. It's not perfect, however, there are inevitably some issues with the handling of time travel. You manage to prove your innocence to someone from the future by proving that someone was killed only a few minutes ago in the past, which ignores the fact that the murder took place 300 years ago from the perspective of the person you're trying to convince, whether you did it or someone else did it. It's a head-scratcher, and time travel stories always have these kinds of problems. There is a kind of glaring problem with the premise of the renegade Time Lord changing the past, which is, how do they know they're not changing it in a way that will prevent their own birth, or turn them functionally into another individual? If there's one thing that studying social history taught me, it's that large trends may be the inevitable result of the aggregation of activity on the macro scale, but the actual experience of history is lived out by individuals who will be enormously affected by meddling in the specifics of history. So, does World War I happen if Archduke Franz Ferdinand isn't killed by Gavrilo Princip? Probably, because there were forces, large forces, pushing many different powers towards the idea that a war in Europe was a good idea. Forces arguably based as much in class conflict as they were based in imperialist ambitions. Does that war automatically lead to a bloody stalemate in trench warfare? Again, probably. The last year of the American Civil War was basically trench warfare, and defensive killing technology had only improved since then. However, exactly where the war starts, where the battle lines are drawn, where those shells land, that has an enormous impact on the specific people who are suddenly directly under threat of death in this new timeline. Suddenly, it's a different, though probably overlapping, 20 million people dying in action on the front. And that change ripples forward through history. Millions upon millions of people born after the First World War suddenly no longer exist because the precise circumstances of their parents' meeting no longer applies. Now, new people are born who are probably extremely similar to the people who would have been born if history hadn't been changed. People, after all, are more similar than they are different. But the ramifications for you as an individual who's going to be affected by these rippling time changes is huge. 
history isn't dramatically different when the actions of these new people are aggregated to the large scale. However, the chances of any specific individual surviving the changing of the timelines get smaller and smaller, particularly as you go further back. Essentially, if you go back far enough, and the 13th century seems plenty far enough, meddling with the timelines in even very small ways seems like a recipe for suicide. Were it me, I think I'd only be happy meddling with the timeline after my own birth. Quantum leap rules, basically. So, time travel stories are problematic, is what I'm trying to say by way of philosophy of history. You have to accept, if you're going to enjoy a time travel story, that from a causality perspective, it will never make sense. Even though the writers of this book have put a fair amount of effort in to creating a coherent set of rules for time travel, it still doesn't make sense. And that's okay. I can suspend my disbelief to the level that's necessary. I just think it's a really interesting thing to try and write around. What I will say is the core fantasy of jumping around, investigating a conspiracy, unravelling across different planets and different time zones feels great in the moment, and I did find it compelling. There's a palpable sense of paranoia and unease within the story, and I was very excited to find out what was actually going on. I liked the resolution as well. It tied everything together in a satisfying way. There's a real pleasure in the pressure situation of following this renegade Time Lord across time and space and struggling to restore the timelines from their meddling before it can all go completely hairy in the present. I would say that this is aided because the quality of writing is upper tier. I don't think it's the absolute highest I've seen in a game book, but genuinely it's not far off. My only gripe is that I would have liked some sequences to have a few more sections to breathe. That's personal preference. I like fewer, more complex encounters rather than a lot of simpler ones. That's probably because, as a result of this podcast, I tend to delve more into the structure of game books than I used to when I was a kid. So seeing different ways scenarios can play out is enticing when I'm going to be playing through it a fair few times, trying to find out how things work. It's not about the decisions, because the decisions all feel really well balanced and consequential. That's probably the book's biggest strength. It's more that things feel very fast-paced, both for better and for worse. There's a few locations I really would have liked to have had more opportunity to explore, not least the Mongol capital. But I do want to emphasise how good the writers are at making me agonise over a decision, because all the available options seem like a plausibly good idea. Now, there are unfortunately some uncomfortable descriptive passages in there, and it is difficult judging something from 1985 by the standards of 2022, but there are descriptions of the Mongols which very much highlight their otherness. I get that they're being depicted as antagonists, and the author wanted to demonstrate that people from the 13th century are quite alien to our modern sensibilities, but there's a tendency to use physical descriptions to generate that sense of alienation, which, whether consciously or not, treats racial characteristics, which are presumed to be exotic to the reader, as a legitimate source of discomfort. And I don't feel particularly comfortable with that. I recognise that the world of 1985 was a lot less connected than the present, where a Mongolian folk metal band can go viral on YouTube, introducing millions to throat singing and traditional Mongolian instruments, but it just never 
quite sat well with me. Again, I don't want to impute any form of malice to the authors on this. I think it's a reflection of the time in which it was written, but I do need to flag it as problematic in 2022. And in terms of the system, I think it's interesting. Resolving everything the same way is great. It makes it feel like there's an actual underlying logic to things. Everything is essentially an either-or role, with modifiers being added or subtracted in a sensible way. I could quibble with two different mental roles, but four different types of role is perfectly manageable. It's easy to balance, and I like it. The range of possible modifiers is kept sensibly under control, so the authors can be reasonably confident of the ranges of outcome that they've put in. I think I still prefer the more attritional combat rules of fighting fantasy overall, but that's probably as much about familiarity as anything else. What is an issue, although not a serious one, is that you double the section cost of any combat encounter. Combat in fighting fantasy can be resolved using a single section with the stats of the monster. Here, because everything has two outcomes, you automatically need two sections to resolve every combat. The one where you succeed and the one where you fail. That's not a big problem, unless you're expected to keep your book down to a particular number of sections, but it does bear flagging up. The upside is that it encourages you to write outcomes for failed combat other than instant death, and that's definitely a good thing. I mean, obviously you can have fighting fantasy combat end in something other than death. We saw that in Star Strider, but it's never going to be your first instinct. The other weakness, if you want to call it that, is that I'm very, very much in favour of the way you can use mechanics in fighting fantasy to create unique combat encounters which tell you something about the thing that you're fighting. So you can create spot rules for individual monsters that really bring that monster to life just through rules. And I don't think that's something you can do with this system to the same degree. Not a big problem, but it's something to think about. I do like that you can have positive and negative bonuses. As a form of decision resolution, this kind of feels a bit ahead of its time. It's almost a version of the Powered by the Apocalypse system, which is rolling two dice, adding some modifiers, and comparing the outcomes to a simple table. Used in a host of modern RPGs, it's really good. And this feels like a distant ancestor of that, which I like. So that is... Falcon 1, The Renegade Lord. I enjoyed it very much. It's worth trying to get a copy. It seems there was a 2015 reissue of this and only this book in the series. The rest weren't reissued as the sales didn't justify it, which is a real shame. I'd love to see a digital collection, not least because that way the authors could see a few pennies from the sales. There's also a curious Spectrum video game based on the book, which was released in 1987, which is a chaotic and floaty affair but it does manage to resemble, more or less if you squint, the outline of the book. You can travel to various different time zones where enemies with apparently unlimited access to amphetamines will rush hither and thither while you bounce around with similar enthusiasm trying to work out what you're supposed to be doing. It's a nice little curio, and it has that deeply odd vibe that is so peculiar to Spectrum games. Anyone with a modicum of programming ability could produce games for the Spectrum, and it seems like almost everyone did, to hilariously varied results. Worth having a look on YouTube for the footage. It's a real blast from the past. 
Anyway, that is enough from me. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. I will be back before the end of September with the fighting fantasy book Phantoms of Fear, which I do vaguely recall playing back in the day. Uh, shout out to everyone who attended Fighting Fantasy Fest this past weekend. I hope you all had a blast. You can get in touch with me and tell me about the nice time you had by email at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you soon.